Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 125. Today in the show, we're joined by longtime outdoor writer and renowned big buck hunter, Don Higgins. And we're talking all about how he hunts the various phases of the rut in pursuit of mature bucks. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we are joined again by one of our past podcast guests, Don Higgins. And Don is a widely respected and experienced outdoor writer and deer hunter. He's one of the guys I've personally learned the most from about deer hunting too. So that said, he was an easy choice for us to bring back on the show. And the first time we talked with Don was back in 2014, and we discussed late season hunting. Last year, we had him on again, and we discussed trail cameras, and today we're going to have him on a third time to talk about the Super Bowl of the deer hunting year, the pre-rut and rut time frame. So it's going to be good stuff and applicable to your hunts in the coming days and weeks. That said, though, before we get into that, I want to give you a quick update on something that's kind of cool. We just launched a brand new Wired to Hunt t-shirt design this week. Have you seen that, Dan? I have seen it. I haven't got it in the mail yet, but but uh, I've seen it. It looks pretty cool. <laughs> I will have my wife send one out today for you. So this this t- this t-shirt design is pretty cool. I'm excited about it. It features a bunch of our favorite hunting words and phrases and a lot of stuff we say here on the podcast, and he uses those words to form the Wired Hunt logo. And um, I don't know if you saw, Dan, but it even says that being said on there. I know. I know. I saw <laughs> so, that. So, yeah. Pretty, pretty cool. And actually what's interesting is the shirt was actually, the logo design was created by a Wired Hunt listener. So, oh, perfect. Yeah, very cool. So if you want to check out those shirts and pick one up, you can go to wiredtohunt.com slash shop. And also we are going to be offering a 10% off discount for all the rest of our merchandise through the end of November in celebration of the rut. And you can get that 10% off by using the promo code RUT. So R-U-T, that's the promo code. So wiredhunt.com slash shop, pick up your shirts, and that is it for my little infomercial. <laughs> hey, and, I got a quick question. Yeah? Uh, will they, if I wear that out in the woods, will, will you guarantee me uh, opportunity at a big buck? I can guarantee you an opportunity. I cannot guarantee you you'll make the shot count. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. As long as I get the opportunity, that's all I I uh, I care about. I'll I'll do the rest. All right. I'm gonna count on you for that one, Dan. <laughs> okay. So speaking of that, then the last thing we have to do before we get down on here is share our updates from the field, and we both have some stuff to share. Do you want to kick that off? No, I don't. You I don't. want. I, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about this whole holy field because I'll be honest, I've been freaking really busy not only with work but with family, and I didn't get a chance to read your blog updates. Okay. So feed me. Yes. Well, it's been exciting past couple of days, dude. It's been as exciting as it gets. Um, so you know, this past weekend I was up north at our northern Michigan property, and um, that was actually pretty cool. We put our first food plot in this year, and it did pretty darn well considering the conditions up there, really acidic soil. And we got two awesome bucks on trail camera. I saw a bunch of deer compared to what we usually do. So that was great. Um, but 
I got back Sunday night really late, and I wasn't planning on hunting Monday just because I got home like 1.30. I had a bunch of stuff to do. But I don't know. I was sitting here working Monday morning, and I was looking at the weather. You know how we do. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, we got really high and rising barometric pressure. There was a great little cold front that came through here. Temperatures are 15 degrees lower than they were the other day. I haven't hunted this main property in 10 days. Uh, Long story short, I convinced myself I should go out there and try to hunt for Holyfield again. And I did. And it was an awesome night. I saw five different mature bucks, including two, well, I've decided to go with this theme of naming the bucks on this property after boxers since okay. since Holyfield kind of started off because of his ear. Well, there's this three-and-a-half-year-old nine-pointer, I think I've mentioned before, that started showing up. Um, actually, this summer he showed up, and I'm calling him Frazier okay. because it would be pretty cool if someday I shot him and I can say, down goes Frazier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only reason you would shoot him, so that's, you could scream that, right? Exactly. That's the only reason. <laughs> and then there's another three- or four-year-old who really does not have a very impressive set of antlers, but he looks like a pretty big-bodied deer. Um, he's just a wide, like, seven-pointer. Um, so I'm calling him Mayweather. Okay. And then there's – so I saw all these bucks. I saw Fraser, I saw Mayweather. I saw a new wide eight-pointer that I've never seen before. I don't think I've seen before. Um, I don't have a name for that buck. And then I saw Holyfield. Um, so to keep this from getting too long, what ha- basically happened is – I was watching Frazier and this two-and-a-half-year-old buck. They'd emerged out of the cover, and they were actually sparring out in the field. And all of a sudden, here crashing in front of me, and I look out, and from the neighbor's kind of brushy bedding area comes a doe and then the big buck right under trail, running, sprinting out in the middle of this bean field. Then they turn around, and the doe runs right back from the way she came, and he goes tearing off behind her, and I'm, like, frantically grabbing a grunt call, and I just let out a big grunt, and he stops right at the edge of the field. He looks at me takes a couple steps forward and then walks to the edge of the field starts making a big scrape just ripping up the ground ripping up the tree rubs up on a tree and I'm like oh he's he's getting kind of feisty here and then he turned again and looked at me and then he starts walking right down the edge of the field towards him like holy crap this is gonna happen the issue though is it's like just before the end of shooting light I mean I'm thinking okay if he gets to me like now I can get a shot but you know we're running out of time fast like it's a matter of just a couple minutes or something like that um, so he keeps coming down the field and then a couple does step out and start heading in towards the food plot where I'm sitting over. And so now he starts jogging towards me. My bow's ready. Rangefinder's ready. The does cross the creek, come in the food plot. And then he stalls up on the other side of the creek, starts looking around and then he turns to head back into the cover. It looks like, and I'm like, well, I got to try something. He's the big boy in the block. I'm going to try to challenge him. So I let out a snort wheeze. He stops, turns, looks at me. And then puffs up and hops the creek and walks right into the food plot right at me. So, yeah. So I'm pretty fired up. But it's like now it's a minute later or whatever it is. And I'm thinking, okay, basically if he comes right into like 20 yards, I think I'll be able to see well enough to get a good shot. But any further than that, you know, it's just not worth the risk. So basically what happened is he came in and then those does were in here and one of those does took off running and he started chasing that doe. So we ran across the close or the first shooting lane that I have in this tree. He ran right through it, stopped. And then when he came out the other side back into an opening, he was at like 40 yards or something. And I drew back on him. So when he, when he came across the first shooting lane, I drew back. And then when he finally came out into the opening again, it was just too far. I couldn't see it was it was not there was not enough light so 
he went were running your, off and were your pins too bright and then it was kind of messing up the darkness in the background or was it because your pins were dark too and it was just way too dark all around yeah it was probably the latter it the pins were dark and everything was too dark and i actually don't have lighted sight pins right now um cuz the battery died in it oh okay and i just forgot to replace it but i don't even if i had the lit pins it wouldn't have helped in this case um yeah. so I watched him chase his doe back out in the field, and then, like, Frazier and Holyfield and some other random buck were, like, sparring and circling around out in the field, and then Holyfield came and chased a doe back into the food plot and came underneath me, but it was, like, way after shooting late now, and I could just look at him with my binoculars. He came to, like, 25 yards or something. Um, And then after a little while later, I had my wife come over and pick me up on the ATV so I could get out of there without spooking these deer, at least with them knowing it was me. So yeah. fast forward to tomorrow, well, sorry, the next day, which was last night, given everything I saw, that morning I couldn't hunt, but I scouted from the road for a couple minutes, and I saw Holyfield and Fraser chasing does again out in this bean field right next to the food plot. So I went in last night and saw a bunch of deer again. Holyfield showed up again like 45 minutes before daylight, but he popped out in the bean field at the same place he did, kind of looked around. There weren't any does out yet. Excuse me, I got the hiccups. So he then, though, heard some rustling over by me because there was a two-and-a-half-year-old buck in the food plot in front of me. So he heard that, and he started running right towards me again. I'm like, yes, now it's going to happen. So I got the bow ready. I got my rangefinder handy. He was coming right into the edge of the food plot, towards it at least, and then something over by the road caused attention. He stopped. He looked out towards the road, and because this is all, you know, not that far off a road. Um, he stopped and looked that way, and then just didn't like what he saw or something. He just turned and kind of jogged back in the cover. I watched him go off the way this other younger buck had gone, and him and two other bucks kind of circled around back along this creek I could see about 100 yards away. And I tried a couple grunts, and he just was not feeling it. And um, he turned and went the other direction. And uh, that was basically it. He did show up again after dark, just like he did the night before, came back out into that bean field after shooting. I saw him maybe 200 yards away, and he just kind of fed out and was heading towards some does. And he's just he's very active right now, and there are bucks chasing does all over the place. And it seems like something is coming to heat early because they are really getting after it. Even the three and four year old bucks, which usually you know you don't see happening at least here until there really are some does and estrus. Um, so it's been exciting. It's been nerve wracking, but exciting. Well, man, uh, good luck. Hopefully he doesn't connect with a doe in the next couple of days and you get an op- another opportunity at him. Uh, yeah. What I really want – you haven't rattled yet, have you? No. Okay. Are you afraid to? Yeah. Well, you know, rattling just does not work here, at least in my okay. experience. I've never, I've never, ever, ever had any luck rattling in Michigan. Um, and a lot of guys like Johnny Eberhardt and a lot of other guys I talk to here – usually do not rattle maybe just a little i mean i've done some light time tickling but we just don't have knockdown, drag out buck fights as often as you do in iowa or something like that like it happens sometimes and there are bucks of course but the number of mature bucks is minuscule compared to most other you know far out midwestern states and then there's just half a billion hunters who are cracking antlers together all the time so more often than not when i used to try to rattle more it would just spook deer i'd be seeing a buck and he'd go run the other way because nine times out of ten that's just another hunter for him um, so I just, I don't even, it's not even part of my repertoire out here anymore. I've just seen too many negative reactions. So, okay. 
So that's my yeah. situation. I'm going to go back out tonight. As soon as we get done with this, I'm going to try to sneak out there. It's, it's really cold again. It's like 10 or 12 or 13 degrees colder than it was yesterday. Right. And the only issue is it's raining a lot. So hopefully the rain dies down a little bit maybe. And um, I am going to try a new spot. My back kind of secluded honey hole that I haven't hunted once yet this year. I think uh, I think tonight's the night to give it a shot. So that's the game plan. All right, man. Well, good luck and hopefully uh it all it all works out. Yeah, man. What about you? What's what is new with you? Well, as of right now, um I'll just I'll, I'm going to only talk about one hunt so far cuz it was last Friday night. Okay. And uh because Saturday night was nothing. I checked my trail cameras and decided to lay off the mornings as of right now because they were, they weren't showing any activity. There was there's been a lot of activity on the farm with actually farming. So um, I think that's kind of jostled the deer up for the time being. However, I went down to uh, a stand, an observation stand uh, along. It's in a fence row that is that splits a marsh, uh, the horse pasture, a cattle pasture, and uh, in a bean field. And I sat right on the intersection of that. Okay. And so I get up there, I set up, and I I pull my bow up and I hang it on the tree and I start hearing something running towards me and it's three does. They hop the fence out of the um, horse pasture and they start, they make their way right by me. They did exactly what I was hoping they were going to do going into the bean uh, field and working their way down this fence line um, north of this marsh. The doe stops and all three of the does are looking behind her and they're looking behind her and they're looking behind her. And you're thinking, all right, here we go. Yeah. And it's, it's only four o'clock, right? So it's, it's a little early and I'm like, man, I, uh, you know, is something coming here? And I, I, I heard some noise back there, but I really, you know, you know, could have been a squirrel. You never know. So this doe walks over to a scrape that's on the bean field and works it like a buck would work it. Right. Uh, pause it. Paw. Yep. She paused it, the dirt, she peed in it and she, uh, did the licking branch That's pretty and cool. yeah. And so from what I've seen over the past, uh, she, this means that they're in heat or coming to, you know, coming to get into heat. And this was a big old mature doe. And I was going to shoot a doe that night, but with all this happening so early, and I saw deer clear across the bean field uh, from where I was at. I'm just like, okay, something something has got these deer up on their feet, and I kind of want to know what it is. And they're not spooked, right? So these deer, these three does are heading, and they work their along this fence line. They work their way out of my uh, view, and then I, from behind me, I hear brr, brr, two big loud which sounds like a mature buck grunt. And I'm like, Oh boy, it's going to, it's going to happen. It's going to yes. happen tonight, you know? Yes. And so I put my, I put my seat up and I'm, I'm facing the tree. I'm, I'm got my shooting lane ready. Uh, and this is a complete run and gun setup. I did everything right before I got there and I start hearing steps coming towards this fence line. And then behind me, I hear another, it's another buck two big deep grunts and i'm like oh boy it's you know it's october 24th right this isn't supposed to really be happening like this right now and then i heard this 
buck in there, he was murdering a tree. He was just raking it up and down and up and down. And, and, uh, then this other buck, and at this time I can't see him, right? This other buck, he's in the grass out of my view and he's pawing at grass. It sounds like he's either thrashing it with his antlers or he's making a scrape in this tall grass. And so I'm getting jacked up, right? And everything is slowly starting to work its way towards me. And I think I can see the the butt end of a, a buck through my binoculars into the timber. And then I hear, brr, brr, and, and the farmer of the cattle pasture starts to trim trees that have fallen over his fence line so he can fix the fence, pull the top uh, section of the barbed wire up and, uh. and address er, and fix the fence so he can put his cattle in there. And I'm going, no, like in my head, I'm like, you son of a bitch. Ah! <laughs> and, and he, uh, and so he, uh. he works, he just continues to work his way, you know, by me. And obviously that, running stopped. Uh, I didn't see any deer close to me, but on a working farm like that. And by the way, this guy got within 15, 20 yards of me and didn't see me, uh, which is kind of cool, but, um, I'm, I'm watching deer still move across the field on the North end. So that just kind of tells you a little bit about some of these working farms and how comfortable some of these deer feel. Now, granted, none of them were mature bucks, but I saw a handful of does and a whole bunch of, I shouldn't say a whole bunch, but three young bucks, um, you know, one, two-year-old bucks um, on the opposite side. And they were just feeding in this in this bean field while the guy's cutting trees. Um, they couldn't see him, but, you know, when he started getting closer to mine, all they did was slowly walk right back into the timber. And then when he stopped... Um, it, it was all happened at prime time, right? Mm-hmm. So nothing was going to happen, uh, after that. And, uh, then, you know, I went out Saturday night and, uh, nothing, nothing showed up, not one deer. So bummer. Yeah. What, uh, I've had a, go I was, ahead. I was going to say, what is the latest on trail camera? Do you have any of your big boys showing back up? Nope. I got kind of, uh, I kind of got a freeze right now. I, however, I have. I have two trail cameras that I haven't checked since oh the first week in October, and I won't check them until I go hunt those stands. So I don't want to go in this in this area to hunt the stands. It's one of those trail camera locations where I'm not going to check them until I actually hunt the area, just because I don't want to put any additional pressure on yeah. the property. Yeah. Um, however, I did have a giant. 300 it, the body looks gigantic he's i think he's 300 pounds huge neck his antlers maybe are 130 you know maybe maybe not even that i sent you the picture yeah I, and, he's an awesome looking buck yeah and he's blind in one eye just like a true warrior uh he's been on my buddy's uh property for two three years now or two years now and uh he is definitely a shooter he's he is his body just screams like maybe a five-year-old Wow. Uh, with just a, like a scrub rack, but he's, uh, he's mature and he's, so that makes my hit list. Yeah. I love that 130 inch buck is a scrub buck for you. And, well, and my best buck in Michigan won't even meet 125, <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you mean relative yeah. to what else is running around over there. Yeah. Um, so then I, I went and I checked my other farm to the Northwest, you know, where I had the buck that I shot last year running around and, uh, 
the only thing I got on trail camera was muzzleloader pictures and one picture of one of the shooter bucks in that area at like three in the morning working his way through. So muzzleloader pictures, guy pictures of guys muzzleloading hunting. When was that? Uh, this was October, I think, tenth through the twenty third. Oh, I forgot you guys uh, have that weird mid October yeah. season. And which this is your main farm? No, this is my uh, this is my uh, uh, farm close to my house. Oh, the one that, where the Booner was. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I didn't know he let other guys hunt it. Oh yeah, he lets. Uh, from the looks of it, he lets more guys than he knows hunt it. Oh, that's a bummer. so. I talked to the guy and they're, they really don't care. Um, however, all they do is care that, you know, everybody's safe, but, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, it's muzzleloader season that's over. And now the only person who's out there right now is me. And, uh, I have it until shotgun season starts and then it will get uh, beat to shit. And then I'll probably won't ever see a deer on it. Yeah. Well, get it done before then. Okay. Right. But I did happen to do some scouting on the South end of, yeah. uh, of that property and I found some of I and I, I say this because I don't say it often, but the some of the best bedding areas that I have ever seen. They logged this property in about two thousand ten and it's got like six five or six years of growth where it's those bushes that are about six foot tall and almost impassable but yeah. there's little trails cut through there oh man i cannot wait for the first north wind i think that might either be that might be tomorrow night or saturday here and i'm gonna go sit on the downwind side of that and just kind of see what happens nice. another running gun type of scenario so yeah so which days are you hunting moving forward friday saturday and sunday no uh i'm gonna try to get see today's the 26th i'm gonna try to get out um I am going to try to get out tonight, which is the 26th, tomorrow night, the 27th. Friday is a very warm, like it jumps 20 degrees, Yeah, uh, warm and windy day. I, I kind of talked to my wife. I said, all right, you let me hunt tonight, tomorrow. I'll trade those nights for Friday night and we'll go on a date. Uh, there you go. Uh, play, you know, pull some brownie points out and then I'll hunt Saturday and Sunday and uh, because the temperature drops back down again on Saturday and Sunday, and uh, you know, and then I I work Monday the thirty first, and then I'm off from the first to the sixteenth. So you're off the first to the sixteenth. The first through the sixteenth. Yep. That's a new development, isn't it? That is a new development. Wow. So how did you pull I, that off? Well, I knew I was going to take that time off it's still debatable on where I will be hunting if it's going to be on my main farm or close to here. So yeah, about that. I don't know. I'll, I'll be able to hunt. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to, you know, be away from the family for an, that entire 16 days. Right. Well, Hey, either way though, that's, that's going to increase your odds dramatically. Cause I feel like we, we recorded an episode last week or something where you were talking about just having like one week of vacation. Right, right. And uh, it was it's just one of those things where I really don't know what is going to happen until the day of and a lot of it, to be honest with you, and I hate to say it is on my wife's attitude. So, <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm, I'm only going to talk about it when she's happy. And if she's not happy, then, you know, it may just. But, <laughs> you know, I just you just don't mention it. Uh, and I tell you what, 
uh, for all the guys out there who have wives and you have kids, bow hunting this time of year is kind of a very selfish sport, right? I mean, you're you're not part, you're not involving your wife in this except for maybe dropping you off and uh, <laughs> on the four wheeler. You know, I'm sure she yep. appreci- pre- appreciates that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, it's one of those things where let them know how much this means to you and how much, you know, you understand that you're walking away for a while. And if you're, if your guys' kids are like my kids, uh, she is going to hate being a single parent for, you know, 16 days or, um, however many days there are. And I really appreciate her. I love her very much for, for doing that. Um, it's a battle at times, but, uh, she, uh, she gets it. She understands. And, uh, I understand the frustration that she has to go through too. So make sure you guys tell your wives or shit. It's 2016. Tell your husband, to, uh, <laughs> uh, if <laughs> that you appreciate them. Oh, Dan. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I really want to keep this on track here. All right. Okay. What I it's funny you mentioned this because I literally just before we started recording this podcast stopped my wife and I was just like, hey, you know, <laughs> keep it keep it together, keep it together, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> I told I told my wife I'm like, hey, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you being cool with this. You know, from this point on, you know, it's probably going to be crazy hunting every day and working late at night, and I'm going to be a bad husband for the next couple weeks. And right. you know, just like you mentioned with your wife, she's a uh, she gets it and is supportive, and it's it's we're very lucky, very lucky to have supportive wives. So, mm-hmm. so that my said, is, my wife's to the point now where some of the pressure on me, she puts a little pressure on me, like, yeah, go out and kill that buck. Why did why did you do that? Why like she's asking me questions that you know sometimes need to be asked, like, <laughs> why didn't you move that stand closer to the buck? Um, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good question. That's uh, funny. Kylie does I the same I, thing. Yeah, I would. Why didn't you? Why didn't you shoot one tonight? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I tried. I can, yeah, I, I tried. Well, just hurry up and go shoot one. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. I, I <laughs> yes, have dear. a, I have a, a like a whiteboard next to my desk that I sometimes put like to do list items on there, and then sometimes when there's like honeydew stuff, Kylie will put some things on there. And right now, in big red letters, she wrote "kill an old buck!" exclamation point. So, right. so she uh, she's trying to keep me on keep me on task. Yep. Uh, oh, you know, life, life. But hey, life. life is exciting right now for us as deer hunters. So, dude, it is. It is pre rut right now. I've talked to so many guys around here right now who are seeing heavy chasing right now. Yep. Um, and they are. You know, it's it's that time where I think like what I saw from the stand on Friday. These first does are coming into estrus. You know, we talk about that bell curve all the time. Yep. That that beginning of the bell curve is starting right now. And what's what's special about that is when there's just a few of those does coming in, right? All the bucks are going to be starting to try to find that early doe. So if you happen to be in the spot where that doe is, right. hit it hit it hard. Right. That's, that's fact. That's what seems to be happening by me. Like I, like I said, I've had mature bucks chasing does around already out in broad daylight. So. I've hunted two days in a row. I'm back in today. I'm going to hunt again tomorrow and just try to be there when the getting's good. And maybe we'll get lucky. So right. I guess, though, we should wrap up our intro here and get Don on because maybe he'll have the advice that you and me need to finally kill a deer. Oh, I need, like, more than just advice. I need 
like someone driving my body in my brain. <laughs> I don't think he can do that for you, but uh, okay. we can ask, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, then, gosh, I've said that said even more than usual today, I feel like. <laughs> hey, it's on the T-shirt. It's on the T-shirt. Buy that T-shirt. <laughs> You're subconsciously trying to get people to buy stuff from you, aren't you? I think that might be it. So right. I don't even know how to transition anymore. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's take a break for a word from our sponsors at Sick of Gear, and then we'll give Don Higgins a call. So as we do every week, we need to thank our partners at Sick of Gear for their ongoing support of the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today, rather than another Sitka story, today I want to remind you about Sitka's Diverge photo contest that's going on right now. As we mentioned earlier this year, Sitka is running this contest through December 15th in which they're looking for unique and creative photos from your hunting adventures. As they put it, we've come together to share the very real things we've seen, the grit, the beauty, the truth of hunting, the rawness. Prizes for the contest include Sitka hats and hunting apparel, GoPros, the chance to be published in print, and even an all-expenses-paid trip to Bozeman, Montana. So if you think you have an eye for authentic hunting photography, be sure to submit your pictures by using the hashtag Diverge5, the number 5, on Instagram, or visit sitkagear.com diverge. Even if you don't plan on submitting a photo into the contest, you really should still visit that site because... On that site, sickagear.com slash diverge, you can take a look at all of the current entries into the contest. And there are just some really awesome photos in there. So check it out. Enter the contest at sickagear.com slash diverge. And now let's get back to the show and give Don Higgins a call. All right, with us on the line now is Don Higgins. Welcome back to the show, Don. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, uh, ditto on our end. We're... uh, we're excited to chat with you, and like we were just saying, you're our first three-time guest on the show, so pressure is high on you today because we're expecting <laughs> great things. <laughs> well, you, you guys must be getting pretty desperate or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be it. That could be it. Um, but uh, but that said, you know, we've already introduced you in the past. I think people know who you are and what you do. Um, so what I'm most interested in right now because me and Dan have just spent the previous 20 minutes talking about how our hunting seasons are going so far. I'm curious for you, how are things going for you so far? Well, you know, the older I get, it seems like the less hunting I do in October. Uh, for the really big bucks, I know every year you, you get on social media and you see some really big ones killed in October. But for a guy, to, one guy to go out and consistently do it, it's tough. And I just found that I'm a little better off to put less pressure on my stands and hunting areas in October and then hit it hard in November. So that's pretty much what I've done. Have you gone at all? Yeah, I've gone, I don't know, maybe five or six times. I always hunt evenings. I don't hunt a single October morning. I've probably not hunted a single October morning in over 20 years now. Um, the older I get, the more I put things together, I start playing the odds. And the odds are so slim on an October morning for one guy to do it consistently that uh, I, I just don't even go out and, and put the pressure on my stands or my hunt areas. So uh, I will hunt some October evenings because in the right condition, you know, you get a cool front coming through or something like that. And you can have success in October. But I like to play the odds, like I said, at November is much better time. Yeah. 
So I've seen a little bit on social media and your blog where you've been talking about your number one buck for this year. You call him Trump. Can you tell us about that buck? Yep. He's, he's an absolute stud. Yeah, he's a buck that I have pictures of every summer since 2012. That was the first year that I could identify him going back through old pictures. Um, he really has never been – I mean, he's always been a nice buck. Uh, last year he was probably maybe in the – he might have hit 160. He was definitely over 150. Um, he's good, but I'm always looking for those really top-end bucks, and he just wasn't one that I put any attention to at all. But then this summer when I got his picture, he had exploded, and I'm certain he's over 180 now, uh, 16 points. And he may even be over 190. I try to be conservative. But wow. uh, the bad thing is is that every year – he summers in an area where I get his picture consistently throughout the summer. And then he disappears in early October and he's not to be seen against the entire season in that area. And since he was never one that I really focused on or a buck that really showed potential to be something huge in the future, I just never spent any time trying to learn where he went or anything. Well, I got my last picture of him October 7th. And ironically, I'd went in that that afternoon to hunt a stand, and I had a, a new cellular camera that I put up on a scrape about 20 yards from my stand. And that night, about 10 o'clock, I get my first picture from that camera, and it, it's Trump. He's at the scrape <laughs> working it. So uh, I think he was kind of rubbing my nose in a little bit. But in the past, he, he's six years old this year, I figure, from – from trail cam history and in the past you know he was about like any other buck i'd get day pictures and night pictures but this year i probably got over 200 pictures pretty easy over the course of the summer and early fall and i have yet to get a single daylight photo of the buck and then during the summer when he was in velvet there was two three-year-old bucks that uh part of his bachelor group and i would get those those bucks, about every time I get Trump's picture in the summer at night, those bucks would be with him. But I would also get those bucks during the day, but Trump would never go with them and step out with them during the day. So, you know, he's truly nocturnal. Um, so it's going to make it tough. That, the fact that he's nocturnal and the fact that he shifts his range in the fall is making it really tough. Yeah. You've, so, got, you've got two really common issues. I feel like I hear so many people with this issue like hey i've got this he's here in the summer but he switches to a new spot when the fall comes around so i guess I, I'm, uh -huh. I'm curious about the two parts of this issue so let's tackle the first part when you have a buck that typically does not spend time or as much time on your farm during the fall how do you go about uh -huh. i mean how do you go about trying to deal with that are you trying to get permission on new properties around there or do you just hope he shows back up or what do you do yeah, and this, this buck is not on my property. He's just on a property that I have permission to hunt. And it's not much cover at all, uh, really. It's kind of out in the open ag area with a lot of corn and soybean fields, just some little draws and such here and there. And there's always a bachelor group that stays in this area. So that uh, is why I've always got a camera out there in the summer. Um, but during hunting season, there's very few deer. Once the crops come out and the ground gets tilled, yeah, there's very, very little hunting pressure in, in that area or deer activity. There's, there's plenty of hunting pressure, but uh, so when, when he shifts his range, 
what I've been doing is shifting cameras in the direction I believe he goes. And I've now got his picture in four different locations. The extreme from one extreme camera to the other is uh, over three quarters of a mile away. Wow. I was pretty confident two directions he did not go because I hunt properties in those directions. And I felt that if that buck was alive in the past five years in on of those areas, I would have got his pictures at some time. And since I didn't, I figured he was going one of the other two directions. So I've been shifting my focus that direction, moving cameras that direction, getting uh, permission on new hunting properties and such. But so far, uh, haven't, uh, haven't got a crack at him and things aren't really looking good. I, I actually figure if I can just lay eyes on that buck one time this season, that I'll be lucky. And what I'm really doing is setting the groundwork for, to kill him next year or two. Uh, if he survives, if I can learn some things through the trail cameras and such and, and know where to be in the future, I'm kind of playing catch up all the time. Now I'm on his tail and instead of chasing a deer's tail, I'd rather be in front of him waiting on him to show up. <laughs> True. So I'm just trying to, I'm laying the groundwork now to, to make that happen in the future. So are you, are you currently hunting any other bucks or is this kind of an all or nothing scenario for Trump? Well, it's not all or nothing. I've got a couple of other bucks, uh, that I would shoot. One of them is, uh, actually in Trump's area. He's a five by four with split brows and split G2. So he's got 13 total points. He's a five-year-old buck that I, I don't know if he'll hit 170. He's, he's easily over 160, but, uh, that's a buck that I would shoot. And in my quest for Trump, if that one comes along, then I'm definitely going to take a shot at him. So, and he's another one that it's the same scenario. He, he summers out on that same area where Trump does, although this summer they didn't, uh, I, I never got their picture at the same time. So it was almost like there was two different groups of bucks. Well, Trump was there all summer and then, then the other buck would pass through from time to time. And so he's going to be another tough customer that I don't know that I'll ever get a crack at, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then I, I've got another farm that's uh, good, probably oh, 45 minutes from there. That uh, there's a real good buck there that I seen in Velvet this summer. That I'll be after him. So, so you got to see options. how it goes. Yeah, yeah, and I've got a, a pretty good buck on another property that is five years old that I know is over 170. I, I got his sheds from last year, and I've got him on video for I don't know two or three years but I'd like to put one more year on that buck and let him get to at least six. And hopefully he's got a big growth spurt. Anyone can get up close to 200. Wow. Time will tell. That'd be, that'd be pretty incredible. So I want to go back to the sort of the Trump issue or any of these things that you mentioned. In addition to him relocating, he's also completely nocturnal, at least as far as pictures go. What do you usually do in that kind of situation when you've got a buck that you're after, but he's mostly nocturnal? What's, how do you deal with that? Well, I believe in that case, there's really only two times when you have a legitimate chance to kill that buck with a bow. Now with a gun, if you're on drive or something like that, it can always happen. If you step on a buck's tail, he's not going to be nocturnal any longer. He's going to get up and, and run from you and, and maybe run into danger. But the two times are he's either with a hot doe um, He'll be on his feet then, but but even that is somewhat, you know, to be in the, the location where that hot doe's at when she's there and everything, 
it's a pretty uh, slim odds proposition. So, but I'll be out there. I mean, if the odds are one percent, I'm still going to be out there trying, and, and that's that's a key time. The other is in the late winter or the late season when you get a really cold snap and the deer on on the food. If you can find a, a good food source during a really bitter cold spell in the late season, that's when the nocturnal bucks are on their feet in the daylight. I mean, that even trumps the rut. So, but the thing about Trump is he's not hunting on any property that I, I manage in any way whatsoever. It's just, it's just knocking on doors for permission. And, um, the food sources are going to be what's there. You know, if a farmer happens to, uh, you know, not harvest a corner of his field or something like that. And that's the only, the only food sources that, uh, that I know of, or I've discovered yet where, where Trump may be feeding this winter. Right. Kind of just have to hope to get lucky and have a spot with decent food. That's that's a tough situation. Right. I think so many of us. I mean, being able to plant food plots and all that kind of stuff. It's it's even though us in the media probably talk about it a lot. I don't know if the majority of people. I think probably the majority of hunters out there don't have that ability. And I think that's a challenge because right. there's definitely some inherent advantages of being able to put in the specific type of food you want in the right place that you want it. I mean, that's a huge, right. huge benefit. It's been helping me this season so far and every year, really, on my main Michigan property. So that's tricky. What? Yeah, what? and, I mean, I've got properties that I am I own or lease or manage in some degree where I'm allowed to plant food plots, and it makes it several times easier on these bucks. But I also hunt. A lot of the bucks I hunt are not on properties that I manage, just like Trump, but it's just it's as real world as it gets. You're out there. Uh, competing with other hunters for example i mean i was about a week or so ago i I put a uh, stand up on a new property where i can hunt trump or where i suspect he may be running and i i got another cellular camera and i decided i better go put that up on that property and i went in a week after i put my stand up to put this camera up and uh in that week's time someone had put a stand 20 yards from the stand i'd hung for trump so If I get him, it's going to be right in the heat of the competition. It's it's not going to be an easy buck by any means. Yeah, that's the worst. I don't know if I had mentioned this earlier on an earlier podcast, Dan. Tell me if I did, but I've got a buddy who set a tree stand a few weeks ago, and then he came back to hunt it, and somebody used his ladder, climbed up into his tree stand, and set a tree stand 18 inches away on the neighboring tree. So this guy, he he potentially could be sitting right next to another guy if they actually went in the same time. Well, I guess they can shake hands and talk about the hunt while they're sitting there. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder what happens if they both both shoot the buck at the same time. I don't think it would be good. Well, Uh, that'll probably make social media, whatever happens. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. My my buddy was like, man, if I didn't like deer hunting so much and if I didn't actually want to shoot a deer, I would just sit that stand every single day until he showed up to try to hunt it so I could, like, tell him, like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, back on topic, Don, so here's what I'm curious about. It's late October. There's, you know, five days left this month or something like that. So I think a lot of people approach this and they kind of, lump it into this category of pre-rut for most people this seems to be Uh that pre-rut time period what is your approach during these last days of october you know actually this time of the year i'm getting projects done around the house because uh 
when November rolls around, I want to be hitting it hard. I don't want to do anything else except hunt. I try to hunt every single morning, every single evening, and a lot of times all day during November. Okay. So, and I think, and I just wrote an article about this. Actually, it's not even come out yet. Uh, I think too many guys jump the gun uh, with rut hunting. They'll want to start, you know, in the last week of October and hit it hard. By the time mid-November rolled around, or especially late November, um, they're burned out and they're not hunting near as hard as they were. And I feel a much better approach is to, uh, I don't even hunt hard the first few days of November usually, but when Thanksgiving rolls around, I'm still hitting hard. That, that's when you can kill the really big bucks. There's two times during the rut when the, the big boys are really on their feet, and one is the 7th and 8th of November. And I know there's a lot of other guys promoted those same dates as well. Bill Winky, for one, has wrote about November 7th many times. Now, my friend Tim Walmsley, who's the official scorer for Boone and Crockett, tells me that there's more Booners killed on November 7th and 8th than any other dates, year after year. That, that's the dates when the big boys are on the move, but the does aren't quite in heat yet. Uh, once you get past the 8th, then the does are coming in and the bucks are tied up with the does. But the 7th and 8th are two days that I will sit in the stand all day long. Um so that's a prime time. And then Thanksgiving weekend, uh, the few days following Thanksgiving there at the end of November, the does are start. the hot does are becoming fewer and farther between. So those mature bucks have to spend more time looking for them. So, and I feel by that time of the season, a lot of bow hunters have, have burnt themselves out or they're not hitting it near as hard. Uh, they're starting to sleep in more mornings and they don't sit in their stand quite as long as they were in early November. So this time of the year, I'm really, I'm fighting the urge because I want to be out there as bad as anybody, but I know that I need to keep them stands fresh, need to keep my hunting areas fresh. And so I back off a little bit, and I was just looking at the weather forecast for this year in our area, and Friday the 4th, we're supposed to have a cold front come through. So I'm guessing Friday the 4th will be the first morning hunt that I have of the year. But from that point on, I'll be out there every single morning. So how do you how do you factor the weather into your rut hunting? Because I know some guys are like, you know, really planning all their hunts around the rut or all year really around weather. Some guys say I don't care what the weather is during the rut. I'm hunting the entire time. How much does that go into your strategy? Well, I hunt every day, no matter what the weather is. But when those cold fronts come through, then I'm I'm staying longer in the stand. And those will be the days that I hunt all day. Yeah, if we get 70-degree days or if we get days where the wind's howling 40 miles an hour or something like that, I'll still hunt, but it's basically about three hours in the morning and a couple hours in the evening. Uh, and, again, I'm just doing it. I don't want to burn myself out by standing every day, all day in a stand. I'm kind of picking the days I do that based on the weather and the timing that I just described. So the, the weather's a big, a big factor, but I, I don't let it keep me from the woods. Okay. What about, uh, we ask everybody about this, but I don't think we've ever asked you about it. What about the moon? Does that, does that mean anything to you? Do you pay attention to anything related to the moon and how it may or may not impact your movement? You know, not a whole lot. I remember when Jeff Murray came out with the moon, moon guide way back, probably 25 years ago, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. And the first year that it was out, I started paying attention to it from the opening day of the season. 
and what I found was that it was dictating when I hunted too much. So I was I was using that moon guide as a excuse not to go hunt, and I just kind of quit using it at that point. I mean, before the first month was over, way back then, I was no longer using the moon guide because of that reason. And it just so happens that this fall, I was uh, given a, a one of the current moon guides for this year, and it was the same thing right off the bat. And in October, I started looking at at uh, that moon guide and planning a few hunts, my evening hunts, the few I, I do in October. I was trying to plan them around those red moon days. And to be honest, I'm probably not the best guy to be asking about uh, how much the moon plays into it because I, I believe weather trumps the moon every time. Now, what I am doing this year is if I'm out working or whatever, driving down the road in the prime uh, movement hours, you know, of dusk and dawn, and if there's one of those days where I'm seeing all kinds of deer activity for no explainable reason, then I'll, I'll look at my moon guide and uh, see how it, how it correlates. But to this point, that, that hasn't really been the case much. So I can probably tell you a lot more in a couple of years from now. But. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the moon guide. We, you know, we've talked to Adam Hayes about it a lot and a couple of those guys, and so I'm kind of in the same boat where I'm intrigued by it and, you know, pay attention to it, but don't really have any of my own firm, you know, beliefs or data to sit to put behind it. But for whatever it's worth, there were red moon days these past, well, yesterday, Monday, Sunday, etc. And uh-huh. for whatever it means, you know, Monday and Tuesday, so yesterday and the day before, I've seen great, great deer activity for mature bucks. Um, so I don't know. It could just be coincidence. You know, lots of times you can fool yourself into believing something's correlated and it maybe not, but interesting, if nothing else. Um, right. So here's something I'm wondering, Don. Does, do your typical decisions on where to hunt during the rut, during the month of November, if we just say this whole month, does it change throughout the month? Like at the beginning of the month, you tend to focus on X. Then at the middle of the month, you tend to focus on Y. And then it changes for the end. Or are you kind of, is it different all throughout the month based on conditions or something else? It does change. And it's based more than anything on hunting pressure. I've got some properties I hunt where I know there's not going to be hunting pressure. And particularly gun hunting pressure, which in Illinois where I'm at is right in the middle of the, of the month. So those properties where I know there's not going to be hunting pressure uh, during gun season, I'll kind of save them till after gun season and let let the hunting pressure push some bucks into them. The the properties I start out with in, in early November are ones that I know are going to see some pressure from other hunters. I figure I might as well get in there before they get ruined and the deer get pushed out and see what I can do. But, but the hunting pressure dictates it as much as anything because I know that's going to dictate where those deer are staying. Um, they'll be on those properties early where there's hunting pressure, but once it picks up a little bit, they'll stay on the neighboring properties. They're not going to just totally abandon their range, but they'll shift where they're staying you know, to get away from that pressure. Yeah, that makes sense. So then early November... How? What's your game plan for early November? What kind of stuff are you focusing on that first week or so? so sound like you said your first morning will probably you're gonna wait for that first cold front. But where do you think you're gonna start sitting at that time? Those properties where I expect some hunting pressure. I mean, there's a lot of bow hunters that don't do a lot of hunting in in October. 
they kind of wait for the rut. And, um, you know, first two weeks of November is when that the hunting pressure is probably the hardest in my part of the country anyway. And I'll get out there and try to beat the, the competition to some of those properties at the beginning of November. Um, but I see the, the month of November, you know, as a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. it. It's not a sprint, but it's more like a uh, long distance race where you pace yourself. You know, you, you don't run to the finish line on the first day of November. Uh, and I'm only planning on, or my hopes are to get one buck within range, uh, one shooter buck within range during the month of November. So, I know that my odds of doing it today is not good, but my odds over that 30-day period or so are pretty good if I play it right. So I don't want to go into my best spot and burn it out right off the bat. I want to, you know, kind of have a game plan for the entire season, start out with those properties that are going to have some other pressure and see if I can get a good hunt or two in on them before the pressure is too great and pushes the bucks off. And then just kind of build from there, saving my very best properties uh, for last, it's almost like hunting a property from the outside in. Uh, a lot's been written about that, uh, where you start, you don't go to the heart of your property to start with. You you stay out on the edges, let the deer have the heart of the property, and then as the season wears on, you work your way in to get closer and closer to those deer and up your odds. And it's the same way with me during the month of November. I start on those properties that are going to have the most pressure, and then. I move on to the ones that are going to have the least at the end of November. Now, now what about actual stand locations? Like you just mentioned, you know, lots of people will work their way from the outside in throughout the season. But for you in your situation, since for a lot of your spots, it sounds like you haven't really hunted very much at all till November or not planning to, do you mm-hmm. approach a property during that month the same way? So, do you, do you start hunting in early November still on the edges a little bit to see what's going on? Or do, since you know it's the rut, you dive into your best stands? Well, a lot of it depends on the property and how they lay out. If it's um, one of these real-world properties, I call it, where I'm competing with other hunters, a lot of times I've got one good stand on the entire property, and it might be in the very best location on that property. And there's no working from the outside in on those. You go right to the good spot to start with. But if it's a property you've got total control over, well, then you, you do the outside in approach and, and slowly put your pressure on that property. Okay. So, I mean, there's just a lot of variables. So do, do you have any stand locations that are are just money no matter what, when it comes to the rut, I mean, it's like a, a pinch point that you can hunt as many times as you want and, and maybe not burn it out because you have good access to that, that stand location. Yeah. And in fact, I try to build those locations on properties where uh, I've got some control. Um, you know, you figure out the, where the best stand site is for you, for your access, for you to sit there and remain undetected uh, with certain wind direction or whatever. And then once you've found that stand site and you got your stand there, and then you do everything you can on that property to push more deer activity that way, whether it be, uh, you know, maybe blocking trails that are out of range or if it's a, if there's an old fence on the property, maybe cutting a hole in that fence by your stand. But 
you just uh, find that best location and then make it even better. Hmm. So, yeah, and I, to answer your question, yeah, I've got several of those on, on various properties where, depending on the wind direction, I mean, for instance, I've got some on my own property where if we get an east wind in early November, I've got a couple of stands that I know I can go to, and without a doubt, I will see a minimum of five bucks on a November morning with an east wind. And I may see as many as 10 or 12 or 15, but you got to have that rare east wind for it to happen. And it's got to be in early November when the bucks are on that cruising and seeking phase. So during that phase of November, can you describe what your best types of stand locations are? Like, I'd love to know in detail, like, are you focusing just on pinch points or just on bedding areas or what makes your dynamite early November stand site? Uh, two factors. One is the pinch point, as you just mentioned, and the other is doe bedding areas. A pinch point near a doe bedding area, those bucks are going to cruise the downwind edges of those doe bedding areas. And if there's a pinch point along that downwind edge, then you got him. What what do those like? What kind of can you give Price some examples of what that might look like? Because we always talk about pinch points, funnels. We say those words, but sometimes it's it's especially for newer hunters, they might not know what that might actually look like in the real world. In the real world. Can you provide some examples? Yeah, two on my own property. There's one where there's, within the thick bedding area, there's a creek that comes through, and that creek makes a big bend that comes up and pushes close to, the, to a field edge. So it really narrows down between the creek and the field edge is a narrow corridor of probably, I'm going to guess, 50 yards wide and to either side of it the creek bends away and the cover is a whole lot wider between that edge of the creek so as the deer travel or the bucks travel that downwind edge that creek and the the field edge kind of pushes them through a narrow travel corridor well with the wind direction they're always going to be on the downwind edge of that so they can smell it and it's really absolutely deadly because any buck that comes through is going to be within uh, 20 yards and most of the time within 15 or 10 yards uh, and then another one is on the inside corner the same just right down the same field edge uh, a few hundred yards uh, the woods makes a uh, 90 degree turn and forms an inside corner in a field and at the same time that same creek comes up and pinches right there at that inside corner and uh so it kind of funnels those deer right through there. So what wind I hope direction? That, I hope I describe it in a way that makes sense. But what wind direction are are you trying to hunt those on? Because I have I have a scenario almost similar to that where I have an ins I'm I'm accessing through the field on a south wind. So my wind is actually blowing to the stand location because I can't access it from the north side. My stand is in that narrow strip of timber between the creek and the field edge and there's a ton of heavy trails and that's where all the all the deer cruise uh during the rut but i i have to access it through a south wind and my wind is blowing to the stand location but once i'm in the stand location it's it's money but how how are you accessing what you've what you've uh just explained 
the inside corner, I'm coming right across that open field, right into the corner where my stand is located, and, and my sense right in my face is blowing right back from my stand right out into that open field. Okay. And with that situation, the deer, the bucks can run either edge, and they've got either a wind quartering into their nose or they've got a wind quartering at their tail, and most of the time they want it quartering into their nose. But And they, they run those edges with the wind quartering into their nose, and they can smell everything that's ahead of them in the cover, and they can use their eyes to see everything out in that open field. Right. I mean, it's absolutely deadly. And then the other situation where the creek comes up and makes the big bend and pushes the, or narrows down the the wooded cover between the creek and the field edge, I use a, uh, a crosswind. Well, basically, I'm coming across the field to that one with the wind straight in my face again, but those bucks are traveling that edge with a crosswind. And the same thing, they can smell everything in the cover that way. And they can use their eyes to see everything out in the field. And so they kind of hug that field edge to do that. So they're, you're planning on a shot in the timber, right? Most of the time it is, but a lot of, uh, I don't know what the percentage would be, but there's also a lot of those bucks that are right on the field edge too. Okay. How much do you, this is a, this is a dilemma I often have, you know, when you're hunting the rut, and you've got, you know, it might be a little bit different for you because you're able to hunt a little bit longer time period. But for example, I go down to Ohio for a week to 10 days every year. And basically, you know, I've got that time period to try to really try to get it done. So there's a, I think a lot of people have that too. So there's this tendency to, you know, be willing or want or need to take more risks because, hey, this is the Super Bowl of deer hunting. If you don't get it done now, well, you're out of luck. So my question, the reason yeah. I set this all up is, how much risk do you take when it comes to wind when you're hunting during the rut? Do you ever go into a spot where you usually wouldn't because you know your wind is going to knock out your chances for one of the directions, but you know there's still two more that could be good or something like that? No, I never give up the wind. I think the wind is so important for a mature bug. Now, if you're happy to shoot the two- and three-year-olds, you could probably do that and be successful, but the six-year-olds, when they come through, they're going to have a wind advantage or they're going to think the wind's to their advantage. Okay. So, uh, I mean, what you can get away with hunting three-year-old bucks, you can't with six-year-olds. So I never, ever give up the wind, ever. So can you elaborate on that last point, you know, how a buck wants to use the wind in his favor? How do you believe they're typically trying to use that wind during the rut? They want... They want to be able to smell hot does in danger, um, basically in the direction that they want to go. Like a lot of times when a buck's going to bed, you know, he wants to check that for, check the area he's going to bed for danger before he goes in to do it. So he'll pass with a crosswind on the downwind side and he'll hook back into it. Um, everything they do is based on their nose telling them it's it's okay and if they can't i you know there's one company that's got uh, the slogan forget to win just hunt well that sounds good in theory but even if you even if a guy could be totally scent free 100 percent scent free no doubt about it and he could just drop out of the sky into his stand never leaving ground center anything if he doesn't factor what that buck is going to do in relation to the wind then he's still not going to be consistently successful because you got to to kill the big ones consistently. You got to know what they're going to do on purpose. I mean, 
you, you can't expect them to commit suicide. You got to know a buck is moving from point A to point B, whether it be in the evening from bedding to food or whatever. And then you got to give him the wind direction that makes him comfortable doing so. I mean, you can't expect him to move from from his bedding area out to feed with the wind right at his back, so he has no idea what's in front. He, he needs that wind to, to uh, in his advantage, or he needs to think it's in his advantage for you to have a success to, to kill him. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's hard to argue with that. It definitely seems like these older deer, they get old for a reason, right? I think a big part of that is probably because they learn to use that to their advantage. Absolutely. So speaking of risk-taking, a second question I have related to that during the rut is with the pressure you put on a specific stand site. So do, or do you think that it's okay to hunt a stand site more often than usual during the rut because it's the rut or I don't know. What are your thoughts on that whole deal? Is there a certain number of maximum number of times you'll set a stand during this time period or anything like that? Well, a lot of that goes into to uh, entrance and, and exit to the stand. If you can get to that stand and out of that stand without spooking deer, then you can hunt it a whole lot more often. Because if the wind's right, when you're sitting there, you shouldn't be spooking very many deer at all. I mean, occasionally you're going to have one get downwind of you that does the unexpected. But access, entrance and exit, is everything. If you got the right stand, and yeah, I'll, I'll hunt a stand two or three days in a row if, if there's a buck that I know I want to shoot in that area. Okay. And I'll do that during the rut when I wouldn't at other times of the year. Okay. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the access and entry thing. This year, more than ever before, I've been, I've convinced my wife to drive a four-wheeler down to one of the properties I hunt and pick me up in the evenings so I don't spook deer yep. off this field. And um, mm-hmm. it has made a huge difference in the number of deer I'm still seeing. I've been able to hunt one specific little food plot area um, way more than I ever would, um, and I'm still seeing good activity in mature bucks. Um, so that's made a big difference because they don't seem to, at least from what I've seen, uh, they don't seem to be as spooked by a vehicle coming in as they would a, a person coming out of a tree and walking, you know? Right. That's absolutely correct. Uh, back to the specific types of stand sites. You'd, you'd given us some detail on your funnel locations. Can you give us the same kind of detail or examples of some of your doe bedding area locations that you focus on during the rut? Uh, basically, they're just thicker areas that uh, have not seen a lot of hunting pressure. I mean, does are going are not going to put up with hunting pressure, just like bucks won't. And especially those older does that you bump them out of their bed and they're going to bed somewhere else. So thick areas with undisturbed cover, uh, key in on those. Um, you know, with experience, you learn where the deer bed on a particular property and just get on the downwind edge of, of where that is. And that's where the bucks are going to be cruising as they check those, those areas for hot does. How close do you typically try to be to, you know, if you could draw a hypothetical circle around where you think that doe bedding area is, are you trying to be like right on the edge, like within 10 yards of it? Or is it more like, I don't know, like how close do you typically try to be? And how do you choose that? I mean, how do you determine the right spot downwind of that doe bedding area? Uh, a lot of times, the, the right spot is nothing more than the right tree or an area where deer activity is already funneled down anyway. But uh, I like to get as close as possible, you know, right on the edge. I mean, it's even better if you can shoot into that bedding cover. 
right? So you, are you? So this is, well, as you say this, I'm starting to wonder though, right? You're, you're, we're setting up on this kind of location because we're assuming a buck is going to be walking the downwind edge of that bedding area to try to smell it. So do mm-hmm. you, you, how far do you usually see those bucks away from a doe bedding? And I know this is different in most, you know, it's, it's always different, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of curious if you've, if you've seen anything in your experience that on average, they are right in the bedding area cover or on average, they tend to stay outside so they can, I don't know, see a little more as they come downwind of it. Have you seen any consistencies there at all? Or is it just kind of random? They, they want, want to walk right on the edge of it. And I'm so close that sometimes the bucks are actually on my downwind side, but I'm high enough that my scent's blowing right over the top of their back. So that's how close I get. I mean, I want to be pushing the envelope, but at the same time, I don't want them to smell me. So there's a lot of variables, but I want to be right there on the edge. Okay. Speaking of your tree stand, um, how high do you usually like to get up in there? Are you are you the kind of guy that is like super super high in the tree, or is it more based on tree cover and stuff like that? Well, you know, I was just talking the other day with a friend of mine. Years ago, I used to think anybody that used a ladder stand was a sissy. But the older I get, the more I like them. So <laughs> it, it's all about the cover. I mean, I want a comfortable stand. If I'm going to be there all day or for several hours, I want one that's big and comfortable. And I need to get as high as I only go as high as I need to get to, to stay hidden. And I like to be at least 15 feet, but 15 feet's fine with me. And sometimes I have to go 25, but I would prefer the 15 foot range with a lot of cover around me. Okay. And, um, and what about, well, shoot, I totally lost my, I lost my train of thought. Dan, help me out here. Do you have a question for Don? I had something lined up and now I don't know where it's at. <laughs> Now on on these these bedding areas, let's say you don't have a, a shooter necessarily on camera, but you you know it's a historically good spot that throughout the years you've had good interactions with mature bucks. Is that when you're when you start to sit all day, or is it or is it uh, like a travel corridor or a pinch point, not necessarily a bedding area when you're making your all day sits? When I'm on an all-day sit, I want to be in cover. I, I don't want to be sitting out on a, you know, an open timber travel route between two thickets. I want to be in the thick of it. Um, because during midday, let's face it, the deer's a buck's going to spend the majority of his hours in that thick cover. If I want a chance, a real chance to kill him, I need to be in the same place he's at. So, you know, there's a lot of bucks killed every year out on those open travel corridors and fence road connecting two woods or just open timber or whatever, but I would much prefer to be in the thick stuff with the deer. Gotcha. I remember my question. <laughs> so thank you for the filler there, Dan. Um, no worries. <laughs> speaking of all, <clears throat> excuse me, now I can't talk. Speaking of all day sits. Do you have any advice for pulling those off? Because that's a struggle for a lot of people. Anything that helps you get through a full day or something? I am one of those people. Right. This is for you, Dan. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I don't do a lot of those. It's uh, If you know there's a shooter buck on the property, that will really help. I mean, your confidence has to be there. If you're not confident in your area, I mean, it's about impossible to sit there all day. Yeah. Uh, uh, past success if you if you do it a, a few times and you see some bucks moving in the middle of the day it it uh, makes it a whole lot easier to do it again 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, knowing you've got a shooter buck on the property, seeing it, a little bit of success helps you do it again. You need to be comfortable. I, I just, the older I get, I can't stand them little bitty tree stands anymore. I want a big, roomy stand with a comfortable seat. Uh, take enough food to to uh, make sure you're never hungry. Uh, just make yourself as comfortable as can be and have the confidence. Yeah, very true. Well, quickly before we move on to our next question for Don, we need to pause to thank our sponsors of this episode, Maven Optics. And one of the very cool things about Maven is that they sell only direct to us, the consumers, through their website. And this allows them to produce super high-end optics at prices lower than the other high-end brands, and also the ability to completely customize your binoculars or spotting scope. So here's Maven co-founder Brendan Weaver explaining exactly what kind of customization options are available. Yep. So we have we we just launched our most recent uh, model, our B4, here uh, a little bit over a month ago. Um, so we've got four four binocular frames, um, one spotting scope, and you you can go in through our builder and you pick the frame size that you like. Um, we've got a 42. Uh, 45, 30, 56, and then, like I said, a spotting scope. Pick the frame size that you like, um, corresponding magnifications. Each of those has at least two different magnifications. A couple of them have three. Um, uh, and then after that, it, it's, it's, you're, you're making the outside of that glass look however you want. We've got two different uh, rubber armors and then five different camos you can pick from. We've got eight different anodizing options. Um, and then you can engrave your name, your phone number, um, whatever. We get a million things engraved on them. But um, you can you can take this 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 glass that competes with the best in the world, and then you can make it look like something that is unique to you. And you know, a lot of people don't care. The the customization to some people, they're, they're just, they just love, they're just like, I just want performance. We we give them that. And so you can go and you can buy a stock. We have three different um, color setups that you can buy stock. Those are shipped the next day. Um, the customs take two to three weeks. But but you can make that thing look look um, just kind of unique to you. And uh, you know we we sell probably seventy percent of the of the products that we sell are custom um, versus thirty percent stock. Uh, Performance wise, they're exactly the same. Uh, so you're not, it's, it's, you're not, you're not uh, choosing the quality of the glass. We only use the highest quality glass. Um, you're just, you're just customizing the outside of the, the outside of the optic. I gotta say the customization options are pretty darn cool. My, my buddies are always pretty impressed when they see wired to hunt engraved on my own custom set of Mavens. So that said, if you'd like to learn more about Maven optics, you can visit mavenbuilt.com. And now, Back to the show. Is there any particular part of November that you tend to try to hunt those full days more than more than another? Yeah, absolutely. November seventh and eighth. Uh, I've had a lot of success in November seventh and eighth, and as I mentioned, uh, that's more booners are killed on those dates than any other date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a time when it's hard to it's hard to beat that time frame. For me, I've seen the same thing like that. If you expand, if you expand it a little bit, like the fifth through the twelfth, like that week for me always tends to be pretty darn good too. Um, I I read an article from you earlier this year, and it was talking about 
the idea of how small properties aren't so bad. You know how you'd rather, I think you had said something on the lines of the fact that you'd rather have a bunch of different small properties than maybe just one big property. Um, right. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Why do you say that? And how does that factor into the rut? How do you approach small properties during the rut, if at all differently than a big managed property? Yeah, it's ironic you mentioned that. Just before we started this interview, I got a text with a, with a photo of a young man, uh, Justin Rupke, with Team Radical Outdoors. You may have heard of them, but yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's just shot a, a big 6 by 6 buck, and uh, he mentioned the same article and was saying how spot on it is that having multiple small properties is, has proven itself to, to be better than one larger property. And the reason for it is, you know, you go and you got a 400-acre property, you might only have one shooter buck on it, but you have a 40 acre property, you might have one shooter buck on it too. Well, he's a, if he's staying on 40 acres versus 400, you know, every time you go into hunting, he's going to be a whole lot closer to your stands if he's betting on that property. And the other big advantage is if you got multiple small properties, you're hunting multiple deer herds and you just increase your odds of having a shooter buck on one of them or, or multiple ones. So, you know, it's, it's something that, a lot of people don't buy. You, you get these rich guys that go out and buy hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of acres contiguous that, that they manage for deer. And, they, and they're successful. Don't take nothing away from them. They're very successful. But for the average guy, I think you're better off having a lot of small properties, even if they're only, you know, five or ten acres. I've hunted some really small properties that were situated in such a way that a mature buck would bet on them and, and has bet on them. So, you know, and, and if you got multiple small property, you burn one out. Well, if you got others to go to, it's not near as big a deal. If you burn out your only hunting property, no matter how big it is, you, you kind of shot yourself in the foot and your odds have went way down. Yeah, I had a scenario like that last year. Yeah, that's an interesting yep. point. So does that mean, do you hunt, if, if you have a situation like that where you have multiple small properties, um, do you hunt those more aggressively during the rut then just because you know you've got all these other spots you can fall back on? I, a lot. It, it all depends on the hunting pressure. If I'm the only guy that I know can hunt and I'm pretty positive nobody's trespassing or nobody else is slipping in there putting some kind of pressure on, even if it's not hunters, you know, pressure doesn't have to be from hunters, just human activity. Um, how hard I will hunt a property and push it depends on on that the other pressure on it if if i know it's one getting very little pressure then i put very little pressure on it because i want to keep it uh, secure in the deer's eyes so that when i do go on it my odds are really high of seeing something right right speaking of pressure um i know you're a big proponent of sanctuaries preserving some kind of sanctuary on your property what what are your thoughts on sanctuaries during the rut do you ever go into them or how do you hunt in or around them at this time? I consider a sanctuary a sanctuary only as long as it's free of human intrusion. It's because the first time someone goes in and hunts it, it's no longer a sanctuary. So I, I never go into the sanctuaries during hunting season unless I've shot a deer. Okay. So, so you're hunting the fringes of that sanctuary. Right, exactly. Okay. And with my scent always blowing away from it. 
how close is too close? When you say the edge, I mean, can you literally, can you, like, let's just hypothetically say there's a swamp and you're saying this swamp is your, is your sanctuary. Will you hunt, you know, right within that 10 yards within the swamp or something like that? Is that safe enough to keep it still a sanctuary in there? I mean, they might be able to see you. You could hypothetically spook a deer in there. Is that still a huntable spot or are you off it? Yeah, I hunt right on the edge of the sanctuary where if there's a deer, you know, in fairly close to the edge, he could see me slipping into my stand. Okay. But my scent's never going to be in there. My ground scent's never going to be in there. He's never going to see me in there, although they may see me on the edge. Okay. Is there a, is there a minimum size that you like, or is there something like, yeah, if it's, if it's an acre, it's not really a sanctuary, but if it's up to five acres, well, now it's a sanctuary. Is there any kind of quantification that you apply to an area that you try to protect as a safe spot for deer? Well, yeah, but not really. It's not really limited by acreage, but uh, terrain. For example, I like my sanctuaries to have some kind of physical difference around the edge. In other words, a, a buck crosses this creek, he knows that on this side of the creek, he never smells or encounters a human. Or if he if he jumps this fence, once he's on the other side of the fence, he never smells or encounters a human. Or this road, once he's on this side of the road, he never smells or encounters a human. You need some kind of a physical obstacle or some kind of physical feature that that deer can recognize that once I cross this, then I never encounter humans. Hmm. And it can be a one acre. It can be, well, I like them bigger the better. Um, you know, I like sanctuaries that are at least 10 or 20 acres. And, you know, it just depends on the property. The bigger, the better, though. Right. So are you... I'm, I'm making some assumptions here, but let's just say you have a sanctuary. I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of does bedding in there because it's a safe place. So then are you typically hunting a sanctuary in the rut basically as if it's a giant doe bedding area? So you're hunting the downwind edge of it and hoping to catch something cruising? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Hunt on the downwind edge, and that's where the bucks are going to be. Okay. All right, so now let's let's say we're hunting in that kind of situation. I'm, I'm tight to some kind of sanctuary or cover. Um, and a, a hypothetical situation that I can see coming up is spotting a big buck back there in the swamp or back in the cover, but he's too far away. What kind of calls do, or any kind of calling technique do you typically like to use during the rut to try to get that buck to come in closer? Is there, do you try it all or is there a specific go-to that you really like to key in on? You know, I'm not a big fan of calling, uh, for the simply because I hunt an area where there's a lot of hunters and I'm sure you guys do as well. And by the time a buck gets to be six years old, uh, he's pretty educated to those kind of things. Uh, so I hardly ever call. Now in a situation like you described, I may, or I may not. It just depends on the, the situation. If it's a buck that I feel that I'm going to get a crack at eventually, uh, I'm probably not going to, tip him off to my stand location by calling in any manner but if it's like the trump buck you know it, it's a buck that i feel if i get lay eyes on him one time i'm going to be lucky so if i see that buck one time on his feet in daylight and he's not going to come past me well then i'm going to throw everything i got at him and i will try to call in that situation but you know when you start talking about six years and older and they know the tricks and and calling whether it be rattling grunt calls, whatever, it's not really that effective. It's more effective at educating them than anything. 
you're out of those antlers and you're telling that buck, here's my stand. Don't ever come over here. <laughs> yeah. So what about this, um, nightmare scenario during your hunt, you spook your target buck. Either he wins you or sees you or you're rattle and it sounds bad and he runs away. Um, how, how down does that get you during the rut? Do you feel like you get a few, you know, get out of jail free cards during the rut or is it game over? If it's a mature buck, and when I say mature, I'm talking at least four years old. And I'm really targeting bucks that are five or six and older. When a buck discovers me in a tree stand or he gets downwind and smells me but never sees me or maybe he sees me but never smells me or whatever the situation, once a buck has me pegged to a tree, I know it's over for that buck from that tree. So I'm looking for a new place for a stand. And I don't think you're going to spook him totally off the property when that happens. But when he does come past that that area, he's going to be looking for you in that tree again, whether it be downwind trying to smell you or, or visually seeing you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a tough situation, no doubt about it. Um, that's That's one of those things that dealing with the whole trick of pressure and the risk of putting pressure on deer and, and how much can you get away with? I feel like I'm constantly fighting myself on this, like trying to balance, how do I balance aggression and going there when the time is right to the right places versus screwing it up for the future. And I think that's such a big, I think that's one of the big cruxes of hunting mature bucks is figuring out the right balance between those two things. Um, I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you make those decisions when you know, okay, I need to just back off out of here versus I need to go in there. Is it solely based on weather or do you take in other scouting intel or observations or something like that? Yeah. Weather trail camera pictures. If I, if I see a buck's on his feet in daylight, uh, you know, fairly consistently, then, you know, I know it's a buck that can be killed. So, you know, why wait? You'll get it done. Uh, if I know that, uh, certain property I have permission to hunt is going to have some gun hunting pressure on it when gun season opens and I get in there right before gun season and go for it because uh, I know that my chances after gun season are about zero so you just got to factor in a lot of different things and and decide when it when it's your time to move in and, and go for it yeah you, you mentioned trail cameras and we did a whole episode back I think it was episode 67 or 68 somewhere around there talking about trail cameras, but for, for us right now, can you just tell us how you're using them during the rut time period? I mean, you know, it, Dan, Dan focuses and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but I feel like from everything I understand about your strategy during the rut, a lot of what you do is based on checking cameras and adjusting throughout your two weeks of rut hunting based yeah. on what you're seeing on those cameras. Um, and you're moving them around and changing stand sites all the time based on that. Are you, paying attention to cameras as much as that or do you kind of know okay these are my core rut spots and i'm just gonna hunt these no matter what the cameras tell me well a little bit of both and you know i know where the bucks are going to be during the rut from past experience but at the same time my main reason for checking cameras more than anything is, is i'm looking for target bucks and i don't believe that I believe bucks are, 
are fairly homebodies, maybe not to the point that those are. It's very, very rare that I see a buck from a tree stand that I don't have his picture. So uh, I don't buy this that during the rut these strange bucks are moving through properties, although it does happen on rare occasions. So, you know, I'm checking the cameras for those rare occasions, but basically by the time the rut comes around, I know what's on the property. I know if there's a buck I want to target. But, you know, at the same time, you never know. So uh, I want to be up to date as much as possible. So just stay in tune that way through the trail cameras. How often do you check them during the rut? Do you check more often than you would some other time of year? Yeah, I actually do. Probably, you know, during the summer, I, I won't check cameras for about once a month maybe. But um, during the rut, it's more like about once every week to 10 days. I want to go in and I'll check those cameras like in early November, say the first from from November 1st through the, say about the 4th or 5th, I'll check every trail camera I've got. And I've got them in five counties scattered all over the place. So, <laughs> I mean, you just don't go out and check them all in one day. But right before the rut heats up, I want to get out and check every single one of them to see if there's a buck that's moved in. And Because they shift their range, you know, in the early fall. Uh, and you can have bucks move in that weren't there in, say, August or early September. I just want to make sure I'm on top of things. But then again, uh, you know, I'll check them then. I'll hunt through that period of the 7th, 8th, through about the 12th. And then I want to check them again as the rut really heats up and does are coming in to eat. You know, if if you got a family group of does and, and a mature buck comes along and breeds one of them, well, that buck's going to he's gonna be there to breed the rest of them, too. So... You know, I want to check them early November, mid-November, and then again towards the end of November around that Thanksgiving time period. So about three times, about every 10 days in November. Okay. Speaking of that middle of November breeding period, um, do you change how you hunt at all during the quote-unquote lockdown period that a lot of people refer to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually do. I'll, uh, I've got a number of stands in like out-of-the-way places, maybe a uh, lone tree out the middle of a cornfield that's you know a half a mile from any woods and occasionally i'll sit places like that i'll slip out there in the dark an hour before daylight and uh, places where i've seen mature bucks push does in the past during the rut when a buck gets a hot doe a lot of times he'll push her out into places he typically wouldn't be drainage ditches is another good one i've seen a lot of mature bucks push a hot doe out into a drainage ditch in a field and they'll stay down in that ditch and if there's a tree or two along such a ditch, uh, I'm just going to out-of-the-way places where nobody else would think to go and where I've seen mature bucks in the past push hot does. So on average, where do you usually see – is that usually where you're seeing these bucks take their does, is these out, you know, far away type spots, or are you also seeing them go and just like thick, nasty cover? I mean, what, what other places, I guess, could we expect to find a buck with a doe at that time period? Well, the area of the Midwest where I'm hunting is pretty much open ag country with some scattered woodlots and such, cover along creeks and ditches and things like that. So we got a lot of open country, a lot more open country than we do cover. Of course, the deer relate to that cover, and that's where they congregate. But when a buck finds a hot doe, he wants to get her away from the other bucks. And I've seen them out in the middle of wide open soybean stubble fields where, you know, the soybean stubble is not four inches tall. And there's not a tree on the entire section, and there'll be a buck with a hot doe out in the middle of it. <laughs> so, 
And I've seen that many, many times in the same way with cornfields or, or whatever, but it's those out of the way places that, uh, away from the rest of the herd that, that those, uh, mature bucks seem to want to push those does. And sometimes there'll be a doe out there and, and the mature buck hasn't got her away from the, the other bucks yet. And there may be a hot doe out there with five bucks with her. So I've seen that multiple times as well. Yeah, so. that's, that's pretty crazy when that happens. I, I've seen some stuff like that a couple times and it's, it's pretty wild. It, and it's kind of funny too. Also, sometimes like, I don't know if you've probably seen this and I've identified this, but I feel like when a buck is with a doe in some piece of cover, you know it based on other bucks in the area. Like I've seen so many times right. there's a little patch of cover and you can just see these other bucks come up to this area and just with their body demeanor, their body language, you know that he's looking like, it's like there's some kind of barrier around this area that he knows he can't go into without the big boy yep. and they're getting pissed at him. And he's just kind of circling around, like checking out. He like, he wants to go in there so bad, but he just knows he shouldn't. Like I saw a buck last night doing this and I was like, wow, like there's, I've, there's no question like that behavior right there is, is gotta be looking at a buck with a doe in there because of the way he was acting. And it's, um, it's always kind of exciting when you know that something like that's in your area. It's almost like, yeah, I've uh, seen that multiple elk. times myself. Well, what yeah, it's almost then? like the satellite bulls. Yeah. Almost like uh, a satellite bull as far as elk's yep. concerned. I want, and I had the same thing happen to me two or three years ago where, um, I, me and my buddy were sitting in a tree stand and we were watching this, this, it was actually uh, No Show Jones from a couple years ago, uh, and we watched him fight off. And I don't mean he didn't fight every one of them, but he stood up and he would like do a, a charge at him or put his head down and wave his antlers and uh, let the other yeah. no the other deer know, hey, I got a doe right here. If you come and try, you're gonna get your ass beat. <laughs> yep, yeah, I've seen that myself. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Well, Dan, uh, do you have any final questions for Don? No, man. Uh, not really. Again, uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. Every time I talk to you, I learn a little bit more and, and not necessarily just about how to hunt deer, but being patient. And that's one thing I think that I'm still in that run and gun, you know, blow into the timber, stomping and go into your best stands right away type of scenario. But I'm learning as I get older. Yeah, well, I remember what that's like, Dan. I'll tell you what, uh, starting to get more than just a few gray hairs. So <laughs> I don't yeah. hunt as hard as I used to, but I'm <laughs> a whole lot smarter. And hunting smarter, I see more deer than I did when I was hunting like a madman when I was younger. Right. I got I got gray hairs in my beard now. <laughs> uh oh. I think yeah. uh, I think all yeah. these kids are probably making that happen, Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's the fact. That's a fact. <laughs> Well, uh, Don, do you have any final item related to the rut that we haven't covered that you want to make sure people know about when it comes to trying to have success during these next few weeks? Well, the thing about the rut is that your whole season can turn in about five seconds. You can be having the worst season of your life, and in five seconds you're having the best season of your life because at that time of the year you can a mature buck can be shot from about any tree in the woods if you're there on the right day. The, the key during the rut is spending time in the woods. You, you need to spend every possible minute in a tree stand. Um, but don't sit there and, and, and burn a stand out. I mean, you still got to hunt smart, but you got to be out there. And if there's ever a time to get out of bed early, day after day after day, it's the rut. So I just encourage everybody, you know, to, to don't give up. Try to keep a positive attitude, even when it seems like uh, your odds of, 
of success are very slim because your whole season can change in about five seconds. Yeah, so true. That's some of the absolute best advice for hunting the rut that, that I'm always trying to remind myself of too. It's it's sometimes easy to get down when you've hunted seven, eight, nine, ten days in a row and it hasn't happened and it's tough waking up early, but just like the, just like yep. you said, it all can change in just a snap of the fingers. So uh-huh. awesome, awesome stuff done. Is there um is there anywhere that our listeners can go online to learn more about your books or anything you've got going on? Yeah, you can go to my website, HigginsOutdoors.com. Uh, I've got two books on the market that uh, can be purchased right there on the website. And uh, anybody that's into land management, um, Real World Wildlife Products is a company that I'm a co-owner of. Uh, we specialize in land management products, food plot seed, things like that. So uh, just uh, visit those websites if you're interested and send me an email if you got questions i try to um, sometimes i'm really slow about it but i try to answer uh, any question that comes my way <laughs> yeah I, I can relate to that i, I am eternally yeah. slow unfortunately sometimes but uh we'll make sure yeah. to include links to those sites don so if anybody wants to check out what you've got going on they can do that and uh and thank you so much we appreciate the time and wish you all luck in the world on on getting an arrow in one of those big illinois bucks well, thanks a lot, Mark and Dan. I appreciate you guys having me on. And anytime uh, you want to talk, just let me know. I'll be glad to do it. Absolutely. We might have to have number four coming up here soon again because these you never fail to give us some good insight. Well, I'm always ready to do it, so just let me know. Sounds good. Thank you, Dan. And with that, we will wrap this one up. But a couple quick updates before we go. If you haven't listened to our new bonus miniseries yet, Wired to Hunt's Rut Radio, be sure to download that and give it a listen each week. You know, if you're already subscribed to Wired to Hunt, you're going to see these new Rut Radio episodes popping up in your podcast player each week. And what this show is, is it features a handful of interviews every seven days with hunters from all across the country, getting the scoop on what the rutting activity currently is and what tactics are working at this very moment. It's an awesome resource for staying on top of the progress of the rut all across the country so be sure to listen we've got two episodes out so far and more to come through november so be sure to take a listen to wired to hunts rut radio moving on we need to give a big thank you to our partners who help make this podcast possible so thank you to Sika Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for tuning in. I hope you learned something today that can help you on your own rut hunts in the coming days. So get out there, be in a tree as much as you can, grind it out, good luck, and stay wired to hunt.